Welcome to Healing with Worth, a podcast dedicated to healthy recovery and instilling hope in the wake of betrayal trauma. We are women who have experienced this intimately and want to offer hope to other women. While we may interview professionals on the show, the content should not be taken as therapeutic advice and is not meant to replace therapeutic healing. If you would like to join one of our free online worth groups to help with your betrayal trauma, you may find us at healingwithworth.org. Welcome to Healing with Worth. I wanted to preface this episode with a little bit of foreknowledge for all of you listeners. This episode was recorded with TC and John, and we did it all in one session. But there is so much incredible information in this series that we have for you, and we couldn't leave a lot of it out. To make it more digestible, we have cut it up into three separate episodes, and we hope that you will tune in the following two weeks to hear the rest of the story between John and TC, because it is an incredible hope-filled story, and we are just so thankful that they gave up their time to come and to share their story and to give hope to all of you. So without further ado, here is the first of three episodes with TC and John Jolly. Welcome to Healing with Worth. We are your hosts, Naomi and Janine, and we want to thank you so much for joining us today. We have with us two special guests, TC and John Jolly, and we are so excited to have them on today. Yes, we are. On our first podcast of the year, we mentioned to you that we wanted to share with you some stories of hope because navigating this road of betrayal and addiction recovery can be really overwhelming. And when D-Day hit for me, I didn't even know it was possible for marriages to survive this because every marriage that I knew that had been affected by pornography had ended in divorce. So I really wondered if that is where mine was headed. And I remember I was serving in a state capacity and really struggled to even know where to go because I thought everyone's going to know. I was so ashamed of this situation now being faced with. And there was an arrest and driving restrictions and a bunch of other things that I just really did not want other people to know. And I really struggled as to where I could turn to for help. And a therapist directed me to a local ministry where I attended a couple of different workshops. One was specifically for betrayed partners and the other was for couples. And I remember going to the couples workshop with my husband. And I wanted to sign up for a couple's group that met together weekly. And they asked me, how long have you been doing recovery work? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, each of you need to be doing recovery work before you can join our group. And I thought, what? What is going on? I want help. And, you know, it was at that time that I learned that there's kind of this individual recovery work that needs to happen before a marriage can heal effectively. Anyway, at that workshop, there were four couples who shared their stories. And even though these were couples that were not members of my own faith, I am forever grateful to them because they had given me hope for the first time since D-Day. And so I'm really grateful that 
you, John, and, and TC are available to join us and to share your message of hope with our listeners. Yeah, well, we're glad that you invited us. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I've heard your story before, and I just thought, These will be a great couple to have come on here. So for our listeners out there, you may have heard their story before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But John and TC are here with us today. And currently, they are serving as addiction recovery missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They've been married for 19 years. They do firesides for adults and children about the realities of pornography and betrayal trauma. They have three kids, and they're all getting into their teenage years. I only have a couple squeezing into that category right now, and it is a frightening time (laughs) and fun at the same time. They have also been featured in the online Church's Recovery Addiction website and work to facilitate different recovery groups as well. So again, thank you for all the work that you do to help bring light to the subject and for being vulnerable enough to share your story, because that's not an easy thing to just come out and share with the public and be like, hey, this is our story. Thank you again for being here. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. So let's get started. Let's first, let's kind of go into when in your marriage, like what was the time frame when D-Day kind of came about? Where did that come out and how did you find out? So... For us, our story is that I struggle with an addiction, and I struggled with an addiction for years before TC ever knew really the the full extent of it. Actually, during the first six years that we were married, she had no idea that that I looked at pornography at all, that that I lusted like I did, and that it was consuming my life like it was. And it was in 2007. July of 2007, that I first let TC know of my of my struggles. What that looked like for me was we had just moved from Utah, where we had both grown up, both gone to school. We actually went to the same high school, knew the same people. Our families were there, and we decided John just, John got a job opportunity, and we had two young kids at the time, and we decided let's go for it. Like this will be an adventure. It will be so awesome. It will be fun. So we moved to Arizona and I was under the impression that our marriage was strong and that we were good, that we were, you know, just that good, solid family with young kids and we had nothing to lose and the world was at our fingertips. And it was just, you know, how lucky am I? We had been in Arizona for about seven months and there was a knock on my door and it was late in the evening and my kids had already gone to bed. And when I opened the door, I recognized the person, but we were so new that I knew it was either my bishop, the first counselor or the second counselor, because that's how new we were. And he came in and it was kind of weird because typically when brothers in the ward come into a home, they make sure that there's other men in the home. And he kind of just came in and I thought, this is so weird, but I welcomed him in. And the first thing I said to him was, oh, don't worry, John's here. Like, I just did not see what was unraveling. What was happening was it was a set plan, appointment, that the bishop was going to come over and watch as John told me what was really going on in our marriage. I still had no clue. John came in and sat down and I sat down across from him and the bishop was kind of in the corner and John pulled out a letter and he just started reading the letter to me, just this confession. 
And I remember as I was processing it very slowly, I was thinking, he's not talking about us. Like, what is he talking about? I don't understand what is happening. I have all sisters. I don't know and didn't know anything about the world of pornography, nothing. So the fact that it was so rampant in my marriage, the fact that it had started escalating to a different level, I just could not process. My world was falling apart around me and I didn't feel like I had any lifeline. It just felt so hopeless and I was I was super scared. But for me, it takes a couple of weeks to actually process all of it. You know, what is really going on? So here I was in Arizona, barely knew anyone. You know, he was my rock. We were going to do this and everything was kind of just removed at once. That was my experience. It just felt hopeless and lost and I was confused. And I remember after he told me everything and he just cried as he read me this letter, he just sobbed. And I got up and I walked over to the side of the couch, you know, where he was sitting. And I said, that must've been really hard for you to tell me. And then I gave him a hug. Like I look back at that now and I want to slap myself. I want to slap <laughs> myself. I didn't know what the proper, I didn't know that I could have feelings. I didn't know that I could be mad because he was so honest and he was crying and he was so ashamed. And, and so I hugged him and said, thank you for telling me that must've been really hard. And that reaction made total sense to me. <laughs> what was great about that reaction is in my mind, I was like, okay, good. This is all done. We're all fixed. I did what I needed to do. And we're, we're good to just move forward. And that this is done. This is in the past. Because for me, I, a term that we use in recovery a lot, it's not used as much in the, in the ARP program, but in other recovery groups, it's used a lot. It's insanity. And when we, we come to sanity through our recovery process, and that terminology is really helpful for me because it's very applicable to how I feel like I viewed things in, in the world. And to give you to give you some examples of that. So for years, I was, you know, I had this like double life where I was a certain way in front of people. I worked really hard in like church callings and things like that. I did my very best to, to support our family, to be really social, to be energetic around people. And then I had this dark side where I would shamefully go and indulge in lust and pornography and masturbation and fantasizing. And I'd feel so bad about it, yet I did not want anybody to know. I didn't want a soul to know. And I always told myself, I got this. I can fix this. I'll take care of this. There's no reason to put this burden on TC because I will handle this. And then, you know, I'd flip to the other side of my double life and I'd work extra, extra, extra hard to kind of prove to myself that I didn't need to be honest about this dark side. I could essentially overcompensate for this dark side by doing really good on this other side of my life. That doesn't work. In fact, one plan that I developed in my mind during this six years was, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go three years without looking at pornography. I'm going to go three years. And then after three years, I'm going to 
just casually mentioned to TC in just a random conversation. Oh, you know, I used to struggle with pornography, but that was that was years ago. And I haven't for, you know, at least three years. And, you know, that's it, it's nothing. And she would, of course, go, oh, yeah, yeah. No, thanks for telling me that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're so great. You know, that's that's how that was all going to go. But, you know, I'd get like a few weeks into that three years and I'd slip up and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I got to I got to start the three years all over now. And so her reaction in that moment of forgiving me seemed like exactly what needed to happen. My addiction started escalating when we moved to Phoenix. We'd been in Phoenix for six months before I told her and there was freedoms that I had in Phoenix that I didn't have in Utah because I was afraid of running into people that I knew because I grew up in, in Utah. I knew lots of people, but in Phoenix, that was taken away. And all of a sudden, these fantasies that I'd been having in my head, I could start being a little more brave in exploring those fantasies. And I realized that like, I was going out of control. My life was getting completely unmanageable. I was going out of control. And so I broke down and just in a meeting with my bishop, which we were meeting about something else. And he just looked at me and he said, John, how, how are you doing? And I just kind of broke down and I said, not good. And I just told him, told him. And I had another little bit of insanity. He said, you know, John, you need to tell TC. I said, I know, I know I do. And I came up with a plan. My proposed plan to my bishop was that I would write TC a letter, type her a letter on the computer, print it out. And when she went into work, I'd drive over to her work and I would put it in her windshield. And that's how I would let her know. And I thought that was a great idea. Fortunately, and and this is why in recovery, it's so important that we bounce our ideas off of other people so they can give us an insanity check, which my bishop did for me at that moment when he said, so John, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's how we want to do this. You can type a letter, but you need to, you need to tell her in person. And so we worked out that he would come with me. And we would tell her and that set the stage for that night. And in my mind going into that night was that I'm going to, I'm going to tell TC what I've done. The repentance process will then be complete and I will be done and we can move forward. And this thing will be a a thing of the past. That was, that was my mindset at the time. So this is the second letter now, correct? This is the first letter. This is the first letter. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea about the car and leaving it on the car was an idea that the bishop was like, no, no, no. So that got vetoed, but that was the first idea of the letter. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's one letter. Right. And did that letter include everything that you needed to hear, TC? Absolutely not. Absolutely (laughs) not. It was a very vague, very detailed overview of... This is what's been going on in our marriage. Now you know. Lots of minimizing. Yes, lots of minimizing. Lots of leaving things out. In fact, in my world, 
I call that the trickle effect and I hate it. It's painful. It's like, if you're going to break my heart, if you're going to be honest, just do it at once. Like just one stab, not like don't get the butter knife out and like slowly one day at a time, just stab me. Like, let's just get it over with. But it took years, years to get to the place where I felt like I knew what I needed to know. And that is the reality of so many situations. And anytime I have the opportunity to talk to any male addicts that are married and dealing with this, I say, just rip off the Band-Aid. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But it's so much better than you saying like, I'll tell her this and see how she responds. And then if she responds in a way that I'm okay with, then I'll tell her a little more and I'll tell her a little more. And they talk about insanity I felt like I was going insane as well. I thought I was going crazy. And the level of just being aware and noticing and the level of emotions that are so hard to explain to someone about just going out and doing regular things with a spouse that is in that area of being half honest, like, oh, heaven forbid, there's like a beautiful waitress that comes to dinner. I mean, it is so scary as a wife because everything, everything becomes a threat to your marriage. It felt like everything became a threat to my marriage. It felt like going to a movie that we would typically go to that I didn't think twice before. I mean, even a PG movie, even a G movie, it doesn't matter. Everything became a threat to my marriage. And so those emotions took me on. I was just high alert and that's exhausting. And it's so bad for your body physically. It's so bad for your mind mentally. It's so bad for your emotions and your state of being. It's just not practical to live at that level. And I wish that there was a way to turn that off, but it's part of the process. And obviously getting help and learning about that and being able to accept that that's okay, but giving tools to work through that is a big part of the healing process. It's so hard. And I was at that same place where I thought there's no hope for us. There is no hope because I'm crazy and he's a liar. Like, how are we going to make that work? <laughs> and, I, and I think, and I think it's helpful also to understand, like from my perspective, where she was at that time. I wish I could have understood that better at the time, because in my mind, I had just done such a brave thing. I was making strides in recovery. I mean, I was doing things that were moving me in the right direction, and I and I was proud of myself. And if I talked to other guys in recovery, they'd let me know, you know, that, that I was doing really good. And so when she would be so scared of me and constantly questioning everything I'm doing, you're seeing this all wrong, babe. You're seeing this all wrong. And for years, for years, I had that mindset. I'd say probably about six years. So we had six years where I was completely deceiving her. And she had no idea what was going on. And then we had about a six-year period where her and I were on different pages. And I'd also say during that six-year period, I was working on my recovery, but I was never yet to the point where I was fully, fully committed to my recovery. It was a lot of it was still the a la carte mode to recovery. I still wanted to hold on to lust in certain ways. And TC could feel that. My honesty was very inconsistent. And, and so it, as, as TC and I look back over the years, we can see how, boy, 
I mean, how did we ever make it? Honestly, we have no idea how, how we were able to make it because we were really on different pages. Yeah, we were. I think that's common. And that's kind that's where a lot of, of women find themselves in the realm that we see other women is this place of how is this even going to work? We're on completely different pages, you know, because it's common and even in my story, I've been at this three years now, and we're still on different pages. And I'm like, is there ever going to come a shift? And what I heard, John, was that 100% accountability factor wasn't quite there for a while, is, is what I heard you say. And that's where it's hard, because I see a lot of women who have a similar situation where they're still wanting to shift the blame to something else and not accept responsibility for their actions, for the things that they've done to create this in the marriage. And so it's it's a common place that I think a lot of people find themselves in this situation where you've got these completely different pages you're trying to figure out how is this ever going to advance to what we're working towards, which is that celestial marriage, right? Right. That at this point in time, it seems, how can I get there? Yeah. So TC, I'd love to ask you, at what point did you feel like you were getting the whole truth with John? Was there a particular moment or event that created the shift in your relationship? I would say no, it wasn't a particular moment or event. So 2007, I found out. 2008, 9, 10, 11, 11, 12. 12. I was still trying to fix it. What I mean by that is I was trying to fix him by fixing me. Because for me, I went to, there's got to be something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. Even knowing that he went to this when he was a teenager, the fact that I couldn't fix it was like being married with him, being intimate with him. Like I went to, there's something wrong with me that I wasn't able to make this go away. This thing I didn't even know about, how could I not make it go away? What's wrong with me? You know, I look back now and it sounds crazy, but that's the first place I went. So I did that for years. I tried tons of different things. We jumped right into therapy. Our bishop was educated enough to know that there was programs. So we went into therapy. We went to group therapy. We did all these things, but I still thought like, I can fix this. I have the power to fix this. And I held on to that longer than a lot of women do. I'm a slow learner. So it took me a while to realize this isn't working. This is not working. And I remember 2009, I thought I was going crazy. I thought I was going crazy because John was coming to me and he was saying, I had a slip. He was doing the 24 hour rule where he'd tell me within 24 hours. He was doing the things that I asked him to do to help me feel safe. I had my boundaries and he was respecting those, but he wasn't, but I thought he was. And so he would tell me of a slip maybe every third time a real slip happened. So I didn't know that. And so I'm thinking he's being honest, like what's wrong with me? Why am I not getting to the place where I can trust him? And there was a point now, this is 2009 and we had a new bishop who was working with us. And there was a point where I went to John and I said, there's something wrong with me. I need to go meet with the bishop. And I went and met with my bishop and I said, bishop, he's being honest with me. He's going to therapy. He's doing the things that I've asked him to do and I'm not moving forward. What is wrong with me? I'm not a forgiving person. Like at this point, I am the one holding the marriage back, not him. And my poor bishop, 
knew that John was not being truthful with me and obviously respected the confidentiality of that and was trying to tell me, don't be so hard on yourself. You're doing just fine. And I remember leaving that appointment being really frustrated that he wasn't like, yes, here, do this and this and this to forgive more. Yes, you are holding on to things. But I went all the way until the end of that year when John came to me and told me that he had been lying to me the whole year. And unfortunately, the motivation behind that was he was applying for another job and he felt like, you know, that insanity kicks in and he felt like the Lord wouldn't let him have the opportunity of getting that job if he didn't become honest with me. And something in me broke when he told me that because he knew the battle I was having with myself. And I became a little bit indifferent at that point. And we separated because of that. I wasn't mad. It wasn't a reaction. It was a, I cannot see, like there is so much heaviness with you. There's so much cloudy gray area. When you're around me, it clouds my view. I can't see clearly. And so I need space so that I can sort things out. I am not capable right now of sorting it out with you around. So we were separated for about eight months. But the times when I started, when I felt that trust come back, didn't happen until like 2013. And something in him, I remember hearing, just sit back and watch, sit back and watch and observe. And and I remember telling myself, okay, I don't think this marriage is going to work out. I don't. What can I do to prepare? Okay, I don't have my bachelor's degree. I'm about a year and a half short. I can go back to school. I'm going to get as much therapy and because I realized I have work to do and I have to heal. And so I was going to make myself be the healthiest, most capable person I could be walking out of the marriage. You know, he has insurance. I'm going to use his insurance to get therapy. I'm going to capitalize on this marriage until it's time for me to leave. And that kind of became my mentality. But that takes time. And so in the meantime, I kind of sat back. I learned to let go of the controlling or the fixing. And I watched and I watched as something in him. And I mean, he can tell you about that something, but something changed. And I just sat and watched and I sat and watched and I didn't grill him. And I didn't ask him a million questions because I was just buying time to get to the healthiest me I could be. But I saw He started going to recovery meetings without me asking him. He actually started working the program. Like I'm talking like a rigorous step four. I'm talking like time away with his sponsor, going over everything he did, meeting with the bishop, you know, all of these things and something in him started shifting. And I would say that that's when I started trusting him more. And I tell women in, you know, my situation and our situation, I say, It's not your job to make yourself trust him. I know you want to trust him. We all want to trust him because as soon as we get that trust back, it's safe. Your job is to be open to the idea of ever trusting him again. And if you can leave that door a crack open, like I am open to the idea of, of trusting you and that you will be a trustworthy person. The rest, unfortunately, is up to him. As women, we want to make things happen. It's up to them. Our job is to be open to that happening, but really just standing back and watching it happen or not happen and making decisions based on that. And obviously we have to have boundaries and things to keep us safe. I'm not saying just stand back and let him do whatever he wants to you and just watch and observe. It is 
boundaries and safety. And if you need that check-in, there's nothing wrong with asking for it. But I just became a little indifferent, like almost like I can't do this anymore. I've done this for, for five or six years and I'm breaking. And so I need to change me so that I survive this and not worry about you anymore. Oh, I think so many women can relate to that TC for sure. And I had a coach tell me that it's your job to take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and his yeah. job is something completely different, but your job is to take care of yourself. That's your job. You focus on that. Yeah. As Naomi mentioned in the beginning of our podcast, we wanted to give you TC and John Jolly's story in bite-sized pieces. And so we're going to stop the story right here, little cliffhanger, and we're going to come back next week. And John is going to share with us how he handled this separation request. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us this week on Healing with Worth. Make sure to visit our website, healingwithworth.org, if you would like to enroll in an online therapist-led support group. We'll see you next time.